Welcome to Champions for NorCal Kids, a podcast designed to highlight the great champions and work for the youngest members of our community in Northern California. Join First Five Shasta Director Wendy Dickens and First Five Tehama Director Heidi Mendenhall as they discuss and highlight topics, resources, and community champions that are focused on children ages 0 to 5 and their families. Topics will cover advocacy, direct services, resources, and support in the rural northern area of California, but often will be applicable to life anywhere. Their goal is to inspire, empower, and cultivate a sense of community filled with hope and connection. Good morning, Heidi. I'm so excited to talk today as um, we always have such fun things that we get to talk about and today will be no different. So um, how are you doing today? I am good. I am ready to nerd out with you on some uh, neurological base. We, we decided we're going to kind of dig into ACEs today, right? And so really name it, kind of pick it apart, talk, talk a little bit about the nerd science that we both enjoy, and then kind of expand that into what that looks like in our North State communities. Yes, I'm very excited about that because I think it's um, at the heart of a lot of the work that we do in First Fives uh, across the state, but especially I think in our rural counties where we know we have adverse childhood experiences that are double, sometimes triple that of the state average. And, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about and touched a little bit about that in other podcasts, but I think being able to really explain what ACEs are, how that really affects your brain. And then what are we doing as a community to really support one another, to build that resilience? Because just because you have a large number of ACEs or your community has a large number of ACEs doesn't give you, you know, that, um, terrible, you know, trajectory in life if you can find some ways to support people who have gotten those ACEs, including, you know, yourself, if that's the, if that's the case. And, you know, one of the things that I think is most exciting is that we both um, counties, um, both First Five Shasta and First Five Tehama got some grants um, through ACEs Aware that we can talk a little bit about as well. So I think, you know, just helping people identify where some resources are within their own areas as well as nationally. Uh, really. Um, And knowing that our state has taken an active role in addressing and mitigating adverse childhood experiences all the way to our Surgeon General, um, who we all know I fangirl over and um, someday maybe Maybe someday we'll have her on our podcast. Wouldn't that be amazing? Let's, I would just maybe that. That. Let's put that out there. That's a universe statement. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris will be a guest will. on yeah. Champions for NorCal Kids eventually. Yes, yes, I, I agree. Someday <laughs> she will be here. Uh, anyway, Actually, so. Um, so many of you have probably seen her amazing commercials, talk, read, sing, right? And also we have some exciting news as far as first fives across the state with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Yes, we do. So not only is she like amazing around her work around adverse childhood experiences and, you know, becoming the first female black surgeon general for California, which is amazing in and of itself. But she's also the chair now for First Five California's commission, um, which only adds a lot of the depth of experience and wisdom that she can provide to some of the work that's happening for First Fives across um, you know, the state, but definitely for First Five California, which you know helps in various ways support the rest of our counties in the work that we're doing. So I'm, I'm really excited that she'll be a part of that commission and that we'll get to see her if we are able to attend those state commission meetings. So right. 
this is just be a plug for being a part of our commission if you fangirl over her like we do but hi so fangirl i'm just it's kind of a little ridiculous sometimes but anyway let's fully back it up a little bit because yeah. well, first of all um i think you know um both of us have done a lot of work in um a whole child social emotional but you hold some very um unique training uh capacity and expertise in aces and so i think i want to have you share that because it's worth stating. And then if you don't mind, can you just give us like a three sentence overview on what the heck ACEs means? Sure. I don't know about only three sentences because you know how I am, but <laughs> um, I, you know, I, you know, Shasta County specifically has a collaborative called Strengthening Families and many other counties have collaboratives as such as well. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But one of the things that happened through that collaborative was the ability to train people within our community um, to be what we call ACEs interface trainers. And these ACEs interface trainers go around and teach people about the science behind um, what adverse childhood experiences does to the developing brain as well as to you as a person. And it really came from a study that Dr. Anda through the CDC and Dr. Folletti, who was working for Kaiser Permanente down in the San Diego area, um, joined together on and did for 17,000 Kaiser Permanente um, patients, they did this study. And, you know, I think the reason why I mention that they were Kaiser Permanente specifically is that that is a, an insurance you have to obtain usually through a profession, right? It's not something that you get through, you know, um, other means. And so these people who participated were typically um, post high school educated. They had some, you know, they were middle class, um, mostly white. And the reason why that also is important is because a lot of times people think adversity or trauma only affects or is only happening in those people over there in that particular community, not my own. Um, and we know, again, you know, as I stated earlier, that's not true for, you know, the nation specifically, but especially not in rural communities like our own. And this study really did explain that that adverse childhood experiences really have an effect and an impact on our health. So before, you know, I think in, if you worked in the social services industry, you kind of knew that behaviorally you would see something from a family who had a lot of trauma that had happened and you'd see this generational cycle that was happening and it would often get a little bit, you know, worse as you were working with them if there were no interventions that occurred. But we didn't really think about the physical health of our of ourselves when it came to this um, adversity that was occurring. So adverse childhood experiences really became a public health awareness campaign, and it was you know what they're coining as the you know most um, prolific and, and since you know the discovery of you know the influenza a long time ago. You know, aside from this pandemic, but. You know, it really is a public health discovery around how it's affected your longevity in life. So I think, you know, um, from that work came this knowledge about adverse childhood experiences and how that really can be um, addressed through a variety of different ways in building your community and building families and strengthening them. And, you know, I know we can talk a little bit about what those are in the study. 
um, as well as we know that that now we understand that even more so there's beyond those 10 that they came up with that were consistent within the population that they worked with. So, um, you know, I know that there's been a lot of work in your community too. And so I wanna make sure you, you know, have an opportunity to, to talk about what it's looking like for, for you guys as well. Oh, we know that I'm not gonna not talk, right? By now, if you're listening, you understand we both can talk. <laughs> Yeah, I just get so excited about this topic. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, but the, it's really helpful, I think, to ground in the, the research and science behind it. Um, it's also because it was a public health and is a public health campaign and because there has been money and funds to it. It's also we're hearing from it from different arenas. Um, and I think that it is beginning, thankfully, to enter all realms, including, you know, complete business realm at understanding how to support your staff and employees and how to provide an environment or maybe help them identify ways that they could become more, you know, effective, right? It's really the ROI, return on investment factor. Um, so because of that, I think a lot of us hear the word ACEs in different ways. And that's why I wanted you to really kind of dig in and just define what that research piece was and how it was identified. I'll never forget. My husband was listening to a podcast while he was shaving and he yells from the bathroom like, hey, you ever heard of this ACEs thing? I'm like, did you listen to anything I said? Right? Like, right. You're like, like wait a second. <laughs> I talked about this at dinner. <laughs> so, but it was, um, it was a, uh, um, uh, autobiography actually and the person was describing you know some of these experiences and what they did when they realized oh my gosh this number really means something and if I don't try and do my own prevent um, intervention like this can happen long term and so um, because it was told in a story it was really hearable right and I think that's I'm sharing that to say that's something that both of our communities are really looking at how to better look at the story of people and understand the people through the lens that yes, there, there isn't a, an ACEs a number and that you may have experienced these six or seven, you know, we know four is kind of that number that if you have both lower above four, we can do some predictions on long-term health, but that's not the whole story of you. And so now let's look at what your strengths are. Let's look at what your resiliency tools are and let's support those. And then that can become the story, the full story, right? It's just a piece of information right. that we use to direct you to the right resource. Exactly. And I think, you know, when we're doing these trainings, um, which are spreading across, you know, um, the United States and, and the uh, Dr. Anda and, um, Laura Porter actually came to our communities and, and actually neighboring communities to do some training on this. And so um, they really did talk about, you know, this test that you can do that can tell you how many ACEs you have. And it's really a one-to-one, -one, right? Like, so it doesn't matter how many times you, you got that ACE, um, which there are 10 of them in this particular study and on this particular test, um, you count it as one. So that's how they number it, right? So there's, you know, technically there's three different categories, kind of there's the household dysfunction, which really is provided through, you know, if somebody had substance abuse in your home, if there was a parental separation, if there was, you know, somebody who had mental illness that was unaddressed, if there happened to be um, domestic violence, um, and or you know somebody was incarcerated so then you also had neglect which could have been emotional neglect or physical neglect and or abuse which could be emotional 
physical or sexual. And, and the test itself is, again, you just answer whether or not that happened to you. You don't go into any kind of, you know, personal detail very greatly, but that does give you information, right? And it also gives, you know, other people information about how you had to transverse the world. Maybe not exactly all the details, but if you said you have four aces, they can say that you have a likelier, you know, that you have a higher likelihood of having some of these other issues happen to you health-wise, et cetera, right? And then there's some predictive kinds of information that can happen as a holistic population um, that we can also look to. And, you know, really the, the nexus of all this came because the work that was happening at Kaiser Permanente was around obesity. And in the obesity clinic, people were getting healthy, but then they were coming back, you know, months later and had gained all their weight back after they had lost all their weight. And, you know, Dr. Floody started asking different questions. He started saying to them, well, what's going on for you? What, you know, and he asked a question in a way he had never asked it before. And he got an answer he wasn't expecting and it was around sexual abuse. And, and then he started discovering that there were, there were veins of that within, you know, there was trauma and these 10 categories I just talked about were the things that they found to be common in these 17,000 participants. And what I always say during these trainings is after we do this test, like if you have no ACEs, that is awesome. And what I can say though, is you're probably sitting next to someone who has at least one and you're probably working with someone who has at least one, or you're probably, you could be intimately involved with someone who has at least one. And most likely they have more than one because typically you're not going to see just one. Right. And so, you know, sometimes, but not most of the time, they usually kind of start to pair up with each other. You mean, you're talking about unaddressed mental health, there's oftentimes substance abuse, right? Or substance abuse and domestic violence or, you know, physical and sexual abuse. So you, you, you can start to compound those things um, and know that that then has its own ramifications for someone's health and their behavior most likely, right? Because they're going to be riskier in some certain behaviors if there's certain types of things that have been modeled to them, right? We also talk about how we model to our children. And when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about prior to the age of 18 and the most significant period of time being that zero to five. That's why it's so important to us, right? Like, because we know that that's when the brain's developing. That's what we're modeling to our kids. And not that that again is a life sentence or that people can't learn new behaviors if needed or modify things. Um, but it's just important, it's information, like you said, it's just something to put into your knowledge cap about how then you need to work on things. And I'll share for myself, I have eight. So eight ACEs is, is a lot in certain people's minds, right? Cause there's only 10 for this study. And that's okay because I'm still very successful I have learned to cope with things. I've done things. There's been good interventions. There's been things that have been helpful to me, right? So those things, um, along with my knowledge now about some of these pieces, have helped me go down different trajectories, right? You know, I did have very high blood pressure, and I had to really make a concerted effort to figure out how do I cope differently with stress, and how do I help my body differently with better eating and other things, right? So it's really about information for yourself um, and as a community, information for you as a community to 
maybe instill some different types of resources for families to support them. Really making sure we understand that adversity doesn't discontinue having an effect on you once you turn 18, right? Because we don't count the number you have until you're 18, which means that all of that adversity we're counting at 18. So that's another thing for me that I think is super important for people to realize is that we often think that, you know, when they're 13, 12, 10, oh my gosh, how awful, horrible. Well, if nothing happened to help them cope and learn and, you know, something intervene for them in that time frame, when they turn 18, there isn't a magic pill, a magic bullet, whatever you want to call it, for them to now know differently. And people often say they should know better. Well, and there's, oh my goodness. I have I was recently in a conversation and somebody said, well, they know right from wrong. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I know how to stop at stop signs, but when I'm late, sometimes I don't, right? Like, <laughs> like, yeah. There's, there's a, a large difference from knowing and being able to clear the cache of your brain and access that knowing. And when that cache is, is very trauma-based and very deep rooted, that, that, that takes massive amounts of tools, right? Right. Especially uh, if you've been triggered, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you're thinking about somebody who has been through a lot of trauma and adversity and the modeling that they got wasn't healthy, functional ways of handling things, they actually adapted to that situation. And, and that's another part of, you know, this information that often is, when I stress it's, they adapted, they're not maladapted. They're not, they adapted in the way that helped keep them safe in the moment while they were children. And when you adapt that way, it may not be societally what is acceptable, but it is what helped you live in the moment in that family. Right. And I think, so I, I, I want to go back a little bit to that when you were talking about the under 18, because the other thing I often hear in um, it's, it's thankfully over, you know, the last years of my career, it's getting less and less, but that, well, they're so young, they won't remember. So it'll be okay. Right. And I think that's another thing that this study and this work has really helped to lift up along with people like Dr. Ross Thompson and Dr. Bruce Perry, understanding that it's actually the youngest children that are affected the most because their brains are the most malleable. Right. right. And, and because their brain structures really can. So, you know, that, um, yeah, they might not be able to recall that memory, but it, another fangirl of ours, right, Brene Brown says that the, the body holds the memory, right? The body keeps the score. And I think that's that, um, it's the evidence like that we can see that it is the number, even if you're under five, you, that number can then predict later health. I mean, there's not much more evidence than that, that you can see, oh my gosh, that really was impactful. Um, right, right. Yeah. And that book, there is a book out called The Body Keeps Score. And it's a and it's amazing book. So if, you know, people would like to read it, it is available. Um, and they should they should try and, and get that book. It really does talk about the fact that, you know, our body, um, and it was uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Anyway, he's the one who wrote the book, but he, you know, he really does describe within this book, how your body remembers things that your brain doesn't always come forward. And, um, you know, I think we will make sure that that link is in, is in our uh, bio, but it is definitely, you know, important for people to understand that along with epigenetics. And I think people sometimes, um, 
have talked about epigenetics in a way that they didn't realize that they were really talking about it, right? Like they would make comments like, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're working in child welfare, or any of the social services industries, and you start to see the same family members, or even if you're a neighbor and you're like, well, the kid is doing exactly what the parent did. And now the kid's pregnant at 13. And, you know, that's, and you know, so epigenetics can be you know, a piece of the puzzle as well, right? So not only do we know that the body keeps the score, it also, you know, in the womb begins to change the DNA expression, you know, because our, we were born as females specifically, but even males, we're born with our reproductive, you know, organs intact. Females are born with all the eggs we're ever gonna have and those carry our DNA and the, you know, hormones and, you know, the nutrition or lack thereof are all a contributing factor to how we develop. So then, then you have that along with the fact that you have the, you know, once you're in the nurture part, so that it really is no longer this argument over nature versus nurture. We know that they both combined have an effect on how we develop, how we behave, what we, you know, who we become. Um, the differences for, for people are that we do have different temperaments, but we also have different support systems. We also have different things that can help build the resiliency, right? Like, so that's the part that we need to, as communities, start to think about is how are we helping children who may have had a lot of you know familial trauma going on because their parents had a lot of familial trauma and and now it's there and, and it's not anyone's fault we're not blaming there's no blaming and shaming in this this is just factual information about trauma because we also know that beyond these 10 adverse childhood experiences we can have community trauma the fact that we've had all these fires in our communities the fact that we have poverty the fact that we have lack of resources in some ways in comparison to some big cities across the states. Um, you know, the fact that we've had this pandemic, like the trauma that's been created from this alone is gonna have some ramifications. And it's really, how does the parent help their child through that? But also how do other adults in that child's life, if the parent cannot help that child through that? Well, so and, I, and, and not even just cannot, right? It's, it's right. the parent and it's other adults. And I think there's another, there's a, um, a few resiliency screeners and there's lots of ways to look at resiliency and five strengthening protective factors. Um, recently, I was reviewing kind of a very short um, uh, validated tool on resiliency. And there's two questions that really struck me around these identifying resiliency factors that could then predict success. Meaning, yeah, maybe you have five or six ACE scores. So you've had some really um, hard experiences, and you also have these other resiliency tools. And so then um, that becomes a positive buffer, if you will, to not, to not having the um, negative health outcomes. Anyway, one of the questions that struck me, and it was just like, so illuminating was, do, did your parents have people that supported them? Right, so nothing to do with the individual themselves, but that that second layer of community was mm. so powerful. Right. I love that. Yeah. And I agree with it so much. Right. That's what the five protective factors. What is it? One of the biggest pieces is building connection. Right. And building concrete supports in the time of need. That's not about the child. That's about the parents having concrete supports during their times of need. Because if you don't have that, you don't have people who you feel that you can go to, to become isolated and other things can 
can start to, to just uh, snowball for you. Yeah. So I love and that. It, I think it's such a good it's point. actionable, right? Like this can become very big because it is incredibly big. It is a, a pandemic, if you will, as they identify it, I identified it. And it can, um, a lot of times in the helping profession can feel almost overwhelming. Like, how do I, you know, how do I shift this? How do I move the needle? Um, and so for me, that's a way to move the needle. If I am focusing on how to support adult supporting kids, like that's doable, right? I can, and I can actionable, actionable as that, as a resiliency factor. The other thing that I thought it just blew me away on this resiliency um, screener was around, um, did you have people talk to you or re reminisce almost, it's not this language, I'm butchering the language, but essentially reminisce about your first year of life, right? Like that, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's another really actionable thing. If you are yourself going through the hardest time imaginable in your life, you can still with or without concrete support say, when you were one, we used to talk to you and hold you and sing to you and, you know, and create and, and you have the power then just through your words and whether that those words could be on a phone. And, you know, if we consider somebody that might even be incarcerated, you can still be supporting resiliency in your individual, even if, you know, your child, even if you're not there. Anyway, that was just really an eye opener to me too and big and made, it, it's what makes looking at the resiliency work so exciting, right? That we, it it's is so important. Because you don't have to do a lot. You don't need a lot of money. And I think that's the biggest thing that um, gets into people's way sometimes. You know, in doing this work, people will often say, well, what's, what is, what's happening in our community? What's being done about this? And, and my first response always is, um, well, there's a lot being done. What is it one thing you can do? What's one thing that you as a person in our community can do to help build resilience? Because it's really upon all of us, not just the county entities, not just the service providers within your community. Do they need to take a part? Yes, definitely. Do we need to, as a community, pull together though? Yes, definitely. It, you know, we've gotten to, and I say this, and I'm not the one who coined this term, so um, it'll be evident when I say it, but you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It really does. And we've given it a lot of lip service, but we really haven't done it, right? We don't know all our neighbors, for example, right? You live in the communities that sometimes you don't know your neighbors because we've, you know, kind of grown into this very isolated, I can do it myself, stay out of my business kind of community. And in, in some ways, I'm not saying that individualism isn't important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have our own privacy. But what I am saying is, though, it does take multiple adults in a child's life. It takes you having support as the adult in a child's life, whether that be because you're the care provider, you know, the, you know, preschool teacher, the high school teacher, the aunt, uncle, sister, brother, it takes uh, other people supporting you to really be able to help um, the most effectively. So, you know, and if you feel alone all the time, you're not going to be able to fill your bucket to be able to give enough to another person, right? You, because you're going to feel alone. You're not, you're not going to feel like there's any, anybody else. So I think, and I can, I can think of my other person. Can you, do you have another person, another coach, a non-parent and even a non-familial individual in your life that you're like, that was, if I answer yes on that resiliency, you know, questionnaire that I had somebody else in my life that cared about me, like. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's true when you look at the resiliency research and, and the one common thread that you see for all the people who've kind of been able to get themselves to a good place um, and not have some other issues is that they really did have a solid person sticking by them, able to say that they had that coach. And, you know, the other thing that I think is important, you know, in our society and remembering is that you know, a lot of times when you're born into a socioeconomic status, it's not just as easy as going to school to get out of that, right? Like education is a huge piece of it, definitely. And I think that we have to be mindful about that so that we are providing good education. But when you live in a certain socioeconomic status, you often don't have the same accessibility to education. You don't have the same ability to get out of that. And so, you know, some of the biggest um, names who have been able to do that have become rappers or are, you know, NFL players or, you know, they, they made it big, but how many of those folks are actually able to, you know, say that if they had not had some kind of opportunity to do that, had not had some other athletic ability would be out of that situation. Um, you know, and, and, and that's a kind of a divergent kind of conversation, but I do think it's important in that it is contributing to that continued adverse childhood experience that can happen through poverty because poverty really does create some issue in regard to continued trauma um, and, and of the sort. So, well, and I think, the you know, it's just that it pulls up is this idea of resiliency tools, right? And because um, you said, you, you know, you mentioned the NFL and football, and we often know that um, there are early young boys and or girls that can get identified as, as negative because they need a lot of movement or need a lot of energy output or, you know, whatever that looks like. But really, it's a coping tool and a resiliency toolkit, right, that is actually creating a pathway, like we'll circle all the way back to hope, right, creating a pathway for them to, to find a different avenue. Um, and I think that's really important, too, to think about whether you are supporting leaders, staff, children, whoever it is, if you are aware that individuals might have a high A score or not, being able to look at resiliency tools through a positive lens, right? So the independence, sometimes we're maybe as a teacher, we're like, why are they being so independent? I want them to be collaborative, right? But really that independence is, might be what is their survivor or their survivor mechanism. Yeah, their survival mechanism. Yeah. There we go. That's it. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's important. You know, again, it's going back to the very beginning of this conversation. It's it's about just knowing, right? Like it's about you know having that information as a tool. So you know, I want to move kind of into a little bit of one of the things that I think both of our communities are trying to achieve with the Aces Aware Grant, which is to get that out into the communities, right? So. For Shasta County, we're going to be partnering with Shasta Community Health Center and with Pathways to Hope for Children uh, around ACEs screening. So Shasta Community Health Center is going to do ACEs screening. They're going to be able to look, you know, have the parent fill it out. There won't be a lot of identification information on that. Um, and again, they were just going to be checking yes, no, and give us a total. Like the total score is five, 
right? Or four or two or 10, right? And based on whether or not they have four or more, because as you've mentioned earlier, four kind of tells us it's kind of that threshold. If you have four or more ACEs, you're more likely to have other health issues and other health concerns, as well as, you know, some coping things that you might need support around. So, you know, we're going to look at that. And then if they have four or more ACEs, they're going to get referred to a parent partner that can come and provide them possibly with some of the support that they might not even know is out there for them or, you know, isn't aware. And, you know, of course there's going to be a conversation and if they don't feel like they need it, it's going to be very family driven. So it's, it, if they don't feel like they need it and they don't feel like they want it at that moment in time, then that's not going to be pressed upon them, but they will know it's out there for them to access for the future if they so choose. And so I think, you know, for us, that's kind of what we're there at this point, because we've been doing a lot of the ACEs training, people are aware of what adverse childhood experiences are, we've done town halls, we've got shown the resiliency film, um, you know, we've talked about how we can start to build resiliency within our schools, within our, uh, now it's time to keep pushing it into other parts of the community, so that everyone's aware, and so that the people who may be struggling the most are now um, availed with some opportunity to get some support that they might really need for themselves and their children. Um, you know, so you want to talk a little bit about what Tehama County is doing with their ACEs? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And I think, uh, oh gosh, it's just so, I, I get so excited. I can't wait um, to really, you know, have the conversation six months from now, a year and out to, to see what we've learned, right? To, to understand what does implementing this ACEs screening in this very intentional um, action-driven way gonna help us better understand about how community accesses these resources and it can truly benefit children and families. And that is kind of the approach we're taking into Hema is like, what, what do we know? Where are we at now? And what can we learn from doing a deeper dive into our understanding of our current protocols utilizing ACEs screenings and or trauma-informed practices and then together as a community thinking about, well, if here, this is where we are now, if we, if we can get a really good understanding of what are the trauma-informed practices and utilizing these screenings in our healthcare, in our enrollment education system, in our um, connection to other resiliency resources, then where can we go from here? Like, let's get a start line, let's get a baseline, Let's come together, let's let's dream about what we want for Tehama, and then let's come up with some actionable protocol items that we could use to embed ACEs into ongoing routine screenings, whether that be through school enrollment, whether that be through um, pediatrician offices, whether that be through clinics, um, mental health, behavioral health, and, and otherwise. And so we have a vast amount of partners. We are partnering with Tehama County Department of Education. We're partnering with public health and the public health clinic. We're partnering with Dignity Health Foundation, who um, is one of the large health foundations for our rural, um, one of our rural health clinics in Tehama County. We're partnering with social services. We're partnering with um, Northern uh, NCCDI, which is basically um, offers all of our Head Start programs. Um, we're a partner, I'm gonna miss somebody, our domestic violence empowerment to him. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm gonna miss somebody right. now that I've started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, <laughs> well, and because there will be like referrals to Shots Community Health Center, right? From some of our other partners, which include HHSA Children's Services, include, you know, some of the other behavioral health, um, you know, though, you know, um, 
Head Start. It could be a variety of people, right? So I think you're right. Like we have so many, and I think for us, our collaborative hits a lot of that, right? Because we have one safe place there, domestic violence. Um, we have, you know, our Head Start person. We have, you know, one uh, Pathways to Hope for Children, which is, um, you know, Michael Burke is a huge fan of hope and resiliency, um, and he's going to bring Dr. Chan Hellman here to Shasta County and hopefully beyond to help us with some of that hope science because we know there's science around hope, and he's talked a little bit about that on another podcast. But um, we know that, you know. We also have, you know, our partners with HHSA through public health and through children's. Um, and in addition to, we partner often with our Mercy Dignity Health um, System. So, you know, I think we know, thankfully, who we need to connect to and that there are a number of people. And I think, you know, both of our communities have real huge champions within them around some of this um, information. You know, we have some that even combine like NBCSS, right? So NBCSS is, you know, across our counties, um, Far Northern is across our counties uh, and they're usually a part of some of this as well in helping support families um, and, and, and making sure that people have the information and where to go. So. And you know, one really unique thing that I think I just um, want to share that we've already started in Tehama County is utilizing ACE-like indicators to predict absenteeism. And so that's been something that actually our local Head Start first kind of piloted um, and now they're not using a genuine ACEs screener. So this is where we have room to grow, right? This will come up on some of our assessments of what are we doing and, and how can we make this so that it really can be applied across county. But um, they're using just kind of ACE-like indicators to, to predict absenteeism. When they notice that there are four or more ACE-like indicators in a family, they're able to provide extra services. So specifically more social work services, more um, maybe they connect them to counseling, a variety of things, but they were they really were able to reduce the rates of absenteeism in 2018, 2019 by a very significant percent just by doing this. So then this year that's grown to our state preschools. And in Tehama, we're unique. Most, almost all, um, sub two state preschools are run by one entity, right? And so then they're able to embed some of this. And so um, just an example of how education can use something similar, but that these funds are giving us a chance to take a deeper look at that up the ante as far as making it you maybe potentially use a reliable um, screener rather than like indicators and then apply across county, right? So, so cool. It is so cool. And I think it would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that these ACEs, this ACEs screening that we're talking about was actually developed by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris at her clinic because she's a pediatrician and she was working in the Bay Area and kind of had this, you know, was seeing kind of similar things in some of the patients that she was helping and knowing that, you know, people were wanting her to diagnose the child with ADHD or some other type of oppositional defiance or whatever the case might be and, and medicate the child. When, you know, she start, was thinking, this is not really, that's not what's happening for this child. And she learned about the research that Dr. Ann and Dr. Folletti were doing and then began to, to give the screening to the parent to do for the child and say, hey, like, where are we at with this? And noticed the patterns for the child and noticed that when she had that information, she could help 
the family better. She could help the child better. She could really, you know, get them connected to a resource that was more appropriate for them than just medicating the child, right? Because we know that, you know, just medicating a child may not be helpful, especially if their trauma response is counter productive to that medication and which is many times it is right because they may be a lifelong tool right like that too necessary and we want lifelong tools right right Right, exactly so i think you know we know that it works um she's been using it for a really long time um and there's some research behind it that you know she opened a whole center there in the bay area that you know has um multiple counties that utilize it and i think it's just you know exciting that we have started to grow to a place where we can now begin to have it come to our area and be able to, you know, help families in a different way. And I think sometimes our families, you know, don't even know, again, I said this before, but they don't know what's available to them within our own communities. And many of them, you know, have moved here or are fearful of certain, you know, kinds of things happening. And so, you know, being respectful to them and saying, hey, this is just a tool for you. This is what you, and you get to choose how you want it to, you know, be utilized for yourself and whether or not you want to, you know, partake in the research, the resources that are available now. Um, that you know that this is a part of who you know you are and most you know I the other thing that is always fascinating to me is you know people are like well if we give the ACE screening it could trigger trigger somebody which totally could but the other piece to all that is that they've been walking around with their ACEs their whole life they know that this happened to them is simply talking about them or having them fill out the form is not necessarily going to trigger them any more than them just simply, you know, seeing something on the street. Why? Because you're not asking them detailed information. You're not asking them to go into the trauma. You're asking them if it happened or not. And in, in that anything can trigger somebody and that could definitely trigger somebody. So I don't want it to sound like I don't believe that that could happen. But in the time frame, um, because they had to create a hotline through the ethics department for this particular research um, and they still have it going just in case, they've never really had anyone use it because they were triggered from answering the questionnaire, right? So I think that's the other piece and, and you know, people do, you know, have this worry and this concern and, and having worked in child welfare for as long as I did, you know, initially I thought the same thing. I thought, well, I'm not, you know, I have to ask these parents already really pretty intrusive questions. And now you're asking me to ha- ask these questions, which actually were not as intrusive as the questions I had to ask them right? for, her, and, and for the investigation. Yeah. So it is, like you said, it is something, if it happened to us, if we experienced it, we are living with it. Right. And there is a, you know, um, there's always a fear of having hard conversations. I have that same fear, right? I have that same fear with my husband sometimes, but that doesn't mean that when you're not ready to take a look at that hard data and move forward, that good things can happen. And so I think it's whether an organization is ready to do that or not, no one can tell but that organization, but it's always worth the journey if you try. <laughs> well, I just wanna, you know, um say that the journey is definitely worth if, if you try. And I think that our communities are really working hard to create good, strong resources for families to build families using protective factors, using, you know, 40 developmental assets, using the information around the ACEs assessment to build um, better um, community partnering, as well as things for families to feel supported by. 
Um, and so I'm excited about that. And I'm sure this is not the final conversation that we will have regarding this, um, because I think we have a lot of um, talking we could do uh, with other people as well as with each other about those resources. So, you know, this is just kind of the, you know, get a little tiny bit into the science yeah. of it and get a little tiny bit of into the resilience of it just so that we could, you know, let listeners know a little bit more about why we talk about ACEs, why it's so near and dear to our hearts um, and what we think, you know, the community is doing already. So. Well, thank you for this conversation, Wendy. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you and um, we are looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to check out the links in the podcast or go to www.first5shasta.org or www.first5dehema.org for additional information, resources, or needs. You can also directly email either of us, Wendy at wdickens at first5shasta.org or hmenenhall at first5dehema.com. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and will join us again. Remember, it only takes one person in a child's life to make the difference in building resiliency. Will you be that person?